Welcome to Southern Fried Fantasy, a podcast for readers and writers, where Southern authors talk about books set in the region they call home. Book lovers beware, your TBR pile is about to get taller than high cotton. Welcome back to another episode of Southern Fried Fantasy. I'm your host, Bob Magoo of Tales by Bob. And this week, I am super excited to have on Rachel Brune. Uh, I've had the pleasure of uh, meeting her a couple times at Dragon Con. Uh, got to spend uh, a couple minutes talking books at her booth there through masks um, at, at the last Dragon Con. Was not the, if you've ever been to Dragon Con, the, uh, the crowds in the vendor hall are intense. And it's always a dull roar and trying to speak through masks is sometimes not the best, but she, uh, she was an absolute delight. Got to sit on some panels that she did and I'm so excited to have her on. Rachel, thanks for, thanks for being here today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. So I like to just dive right in, you know, let's not waste anybody's time. So if you would tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what ties you to the South, because my understanding is you're not originally from the South. Is that correct? I am not. I was born and raised in New Jersey. Yeah. (laughs) So it's, it's not very Southern, but (laughs) um, I then, when I joined the army and this was back in October of 2001. So it was a little while ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I joined and then I joined again because I joined as a reservist and then active duty. And when I joined active duty, it was, um, basic training was a bit of a culture shock. Uh, I never had seen what I thought was bacon and spinach before I went to the DVAC (laughs) Apparently it was collard greens, yeah. which I'd only ever read about in a book. I was like, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. But I very quickly got used to ordering unsweet tea uh, because there, you know, there was the difference. The first time I ordered iced tea, I was like, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was, you know, I, I, I've been living in the South since about 2008 Mm-hmm. Um, in Texas and then Missouri and now North Carolina. And so I've gotten quite used to the warmer weather yeah. and uh, I really enjoy the vibrant speculative fiction community in the Southeast. I think mm-hmm. it's really awesome. And it's one of the reasons why I've just been having so much fun getting to know the writing community. Yeah. Um, and we're going to be here for, well, the foreseeable future. <laughs> Good, 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 good. I hate, I hate to see you run run off. Uh, so you've you've uh, you've gotten to live. Uh, you you've experienced more of the South than I have at this point. I've only ever lived in <laughs> Alabama. Uh, yeah, I've I've been to all the states you listed. Uh, but you know, visiting and living in are two very different things. Uh, so uh, one of the things I like to showcase here is that the South is very varied. You know, Texas, I imagine, is a lot different from North Carolina from a from a living in perspective. Oh, yes. <laughs> if nothing else, uh, you go from a from a dry heat to a, a very damp heat. <laughs> oh, my goodness. There really is a difference. Really, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Oop, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say one of my best friends lived in uh, Nevada before he moved to Alabama. <laughs> and uh, he he talked about how he used to love the heat. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> I was going to say, is he also going to call and give you some heat for calling it Nevada instead of Nevada? Uh, well, to, to be fair, he was uh, he was Air Force. Uh, so it wasn't really his home state either. So Because ah, okay. I, I am married to a native Las Vegan. Oh. And the yeah, I very quickly learned that one must say Nevada or face mockery. Okay, <laughs> good, good, good to know. Good to know. Uh, I've I've been to Vegas a couple times, uh, but uh, I, you know, that's the thing about going to a place like Vegas. I don't know that you necessarily really run into that many locals. Uh, mm, mm-hmm. I feel like the, the locals are all hiding away from anywhere <laughs> I would be. <laughs> so. All right. Well, I like to uh, start by why don't you take a minute and tell us about your books? Uh, I've read I read Side Roads by you, uh, a which was a uh, dark fiction short story collection, and it was fantastic. Oh, thank you. And then I'm super excited. It's it. I've I've got it on my Kindle, but you have and this is the coolest name for a book I've seen in a long time. The Amazing Stories of Detective Boudreaux and Sergeant Woodson, A Steampunk Adventure in Three Parts, Volume 1. I love that so much. Thanks. <laughs> so, but yeah, why don't you tell us a, a little bit about uh, Boudreaux and Woodson here, and then just give us kind of an overview of the, the other stuff that you've written. Sure thing. So uh, Boudreaux and Woodson came about a little bit like Side Roads in that um, the stories had been written for some other projects. Uh, Two of the stories, earlier versions of them showed up in other publications. And uh, I'd had this idea for a project for a while. And so I finally sat down and put it together. And so these, it's a bit of a mosaic novel in which each Mm -hmm. of the three parts could stand alone, but they're also related to each other as you go through. Yeah. And I love steampunk. Um, I love uh, the aesthetic of it. I love the literary aspects of it. And I just find that writing it is so much fun. Yeah. Um, but you can also use it, I think, to explore some darker areas because you do are, you get a chance to explore history, but maybe explore it as uh, it either... You know, you could choose your lens that you want to explore it through. Mm-hmm. Um, so some steampunk is very exuberant. It's very fantastical. There's lots of swashbuckling, this and that. Um, for me, having the chance to explore an alternative history where the New Orleans is this neutral city after the Civil War ends in a ceasefire um, gave me a chance to play with a number of themes mm-hmm. um, and especially since I love swimming in the darker waters uh, some yeah. of the you know the, the different currents that might even be relevant today well I, I can definitely say uh, I, I too am a huge uh, steampunk fan I've written a, uh, a few collections of uh, shorts and uh, I think one thing it does really well that it lends itself to like talking about like addressing like darker issues. Like it does a great job of like addressing like colonialism mm-hmm. uh, or it can uh, some people, I think kind of miss the mark and kind of uh, embrace the colonialist aspects of it. But I think the people who are doing it well, kind of uh, they, they really use that like 
to throw a lens on something that doesn't get the the attention that it, it should, I think. Um, and so, yeah. And like, I, I don't know a lot of people who aren't like super brushed up on their uh, Southern history. Uh, there was a, a window there after the civil war where uh, African-Americans actually had a lot of political power in new Orleans. Um, it was a very, very, very short window. Um, but I yes. want to say that they, uh, they elected a Senator, I think. Uh, who was in promptly, you know, run out of town. Um, but it, it was something uh, something that I played around with in a story myself. So yeah, I, I never really thought about how perfect New Orleans is for, for steampunk, but it, it really does lend itself very well to it. <laughs> yeah, there, there's just so much amazing history and I love visiting. Uh, I have a friend there, a number of friends at this point. Um, there was, there was a couple of years where every so often another friend of mine would announce on Facebook that they were moving to New yeah. Orleans. Um, but a friend of mine that I've known for a while, um, she lives there. She's an artist and you, you can see her on Jackson Square. Maris uh, mm. is, is, her, is her name. Um, and she makes just these fantastical things. And I was visiting her. And just writing down impressions. Um, a friends of ours got married there and we went on a vampire tour. And I yeah. just, you know, was was all of these different, like I said, they're aesthetic, but they're also it's just this vibe that if you uh, are quiet and you observe and it just kind of sinks in. And um, however, there's also it's one of those cities it feels like to me that you can go and love it and enjoy it but it's maybe not a city where you'll ever be a native. Yes. Yes. You no, I, I, I agree with that. I, I actually, uh, me and my fiance were down there for, uh, Halloween, uh, mm -hmm. last year. And it was, uh, obviously COVID has not gone away, but for new Orleans, it was, they dropped the mask mandate for the first time in a long time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, had really kind of started to reopen the French quarter. And so it was, uh, you know, Halloween bourbon street, everyone's blowing off COVID steam, so to speak. Uh, and it was fantastic. And I have been there, God, I've been there. I had an uncle who lived in new Orleans. So I've been there, you know, a couple dozen times at this point, but I, I agree. Like, it's a great place to visit, but I feel like I could live there. If I moved there now, probably my kids wouldn't even be viewed as, as natives. Right. So. <laughs> Which is so interesting because um, I grew up in New Jersey and I went to college in New York. I went to NYU mm -hmm. and that city has this feel that when you move here, you live here. You're from, mm -hmm. like, I would, when I was living there, I'd say, yeah, I'm, I'm from New York. And it wasn't, that wasn't outside of, you know, any, there was nothing uncomfortable about that. Or I might be like, well, I'm from New Jersey. I live in New York, you know, I'm from this area. People move there all the time and then they move out. And so it's, it's, it's just really this interesting um, dynamic. And so in this book, the detective Boudreaux is from Louisiana hmm. and uh, her partner, Sergeant Woodson is from the Northeast and they both they they were both fighting on the union side during the war and then for whatever reason found themselves in new orleans working for the the police working for the uniformed police um and their 
the reason that they feel comfortable working together is because they they are a little bit of, of misfits, a little bit of outcasts, those people who are not native but are still trying to make a home in this yeah. city that's you know that you know will chew <laughs> you up and spit you out. Yeah. Uh touching back on the whole uh being a native or not, um I, I can attest, like I so I live in the Montgomery area now. Um uh, but and I've I've always lived within roughly an hour of Montgomery. Uh, I've lived in the city three different times over the years, and uh, all that said, you know I don't count as a Montgomery native. It, the the Montgomery a lot of the uh, people who were born and raised there it it does get very insular, um, and so I can attest uh, there was a uh, a. a just absolutely wonderful couple moved from California and bought this uh, old mansion that had gone to ruin and they totally restored it. And it's, I think I just saw that they got uh, voted the number one wedding venue in Alabama. Like that, that's the level to which they restored this place. And because they were not, uh, you know, their grandparents didn't, weren't born and raised in Montgomery. They weren't that old money Montgomery. Literally the neighborhood around them fought it tooth and nail, drug them before the city council anytime they could, got petitions, you know, trying to, they would, they would rather have let that building decay to nothing than let outsiders from California buy this, this home and restore it. it it's, it was it, those of us who aren't that aren't that native it was the most insane thing we'd ever seen you know um but (laughs) that's uh and i don't know how much of that's a a southern thing um but it it definitely rings uh you know there's some echoes there from the the feel of new orleans yeah that's (laughs) there's got to be a story there there's got i can see that as like a southern um southern literary um you know, novel that I would read, you know, and, 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 and write a nice review on Gertrude's. I could totally see that happening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And like, I've had the pleasure of getting to know the, the couple that, that are doing it. They're just the nicest people. And, uh, I'm, I actually pay, like, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I watch a lot of city council meetings on YouTube (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I lead a very odd life. And, uh, so it's really, it's like a soap opera, like what, what's going on with him this week? Who, who's, you know, raising a fuss. Uh, so yeah, I can definitely attest. It would make for some interesting reading if it, you know, someone could find the time to, to pin it all down. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, There's uh, I think that when you, so like for me, definitely the fact that I've traveled and lived in a bunch of different places and met different people, like, Plus, starting out as a military journalist and just being naturally nosy about people, um, you know, I've, I've had the chance to kind of like see, see a lot of things on like maybe the first or second surface levels. Mm-hmm. And so I think that influences my writing in a certain way in the characters that I choose to go deep with um, and the situations that they find themselves in. And uh but yeah, I do think it's really interesting for me when I read books and stories that have this generational sense of place, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, just you can feel that deep connection to a specific place 
that that just kind of underpins all of the writing. Yeah. Well, that that's definitely was part of what motivated me to start this podcast was I got tired of people writing books set in the South that you I don't think they'd ever set foot in the places that they were writing about. And you, you can tell, you know, you can tell when someone hasn't had that lived experience uh, and it, uh, or, you know, like you don't have to live in a place, but you have to at least go there, you know? Yeah. Uh, but the more you, you can definitely, it definitely comes through in the work. I feel like, I mean, you can, sure. You can Google maps and read books about it, but uh, you know, you can, you can Google map Bourbon Street all day and you'll never be able to capture how bad those gutters smell after a, <laughs> <laughs> after a parade, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Th- and so I, I definitely agree there like that. The, the people with a tie to a place, it, the age of it, how, how that kind of comes through in the work, I think is really evident. Mm. um so tell us a little bit so i also in in a broader sense besides just the books that you write you also are the head of crone girls press yes and so i kind of wanted to talk about that uh because uh there's just y'all just putting out a ton of great stuff uh and so let's let's take a moment and kind of Pitch Crone Girls to the people who are listening to us, some of the some of the things that you've been putting out with them. Absolutely. So we specialize in horror anthologies. So if you like short horror stories, then you're going to pretty much love our stuff. Um, we have three, uh, four full-length anthologies, and we're about to put out two more this year. Uh, plus, we also have what I like to call these mini anthologies, which is our Midnight Bites series. And it's three novelette or novella length pieces with a specific theme. So, for instance, we just put out Objectified, which was three novellas on the theme of cursed objects. Mm. And so that is a project that I started <laughs> right before the pandemic kicked off, which was really good timing on my part. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was really terrible. Yeah. Um, try, on March 20th, I'm trying to uh, pitch a horror anthology to pretty much anybody and only a few weirdos like myself who read horror in times of trauma yeah. had any interest in it at all. Yeah, no, I, I, I've been noticing there's been a huge uptick in uh, cozy books like cozy mystery cozy fantasy all that kind of stuff just like from the circles i run in and uh and i think it's been a direct proportion to you know life has been hell the past few years so people are like oh man i'm just kind of i just want to read something lighthearted." um so i can i can see where uh yes launching a horror press right at the start of some of the most horrific events of our of the modern era uh, could could be problematic. <laughs> so it's, that's really actually kind of funny because I did say weirdos like me. So like the first week of, of everything, like everything shut down and they're like, yeah, stay in your house. I was like, okay, so what are you going to do? You're going to watch Netflix. So I watched, I think I binge watched all of um, 
Quarantine, which is the show on Netflix about <laughs> Atlanta and this like threat of uh, of highly contagious disease. I'm like, yeah. oh, this is really great. I really love it. <laughs> but again, yeah. Uh, but I do think that there are folks who um, are either like they're either casual horror fans or they just they started to get an interest in darker fiction because horror has actually also had a bit of resurgence. Now, I don't know if it's just these two genres that we've been noticing because we've been reading and working in them, or maybe there's, maybe it's part of a larger wave of people reading. Yeah. Um, well, I know the I statistics know. show that people are reading more now than ever like that. Mm, that's mm-hmm. been on an upward trend, but I can just say um, going into my local books, a million used to, they had like, uh, basically like a few shelves for horror um mm-hmm. the last time i was in there they had three racks for horror which was um easily at least two times more than i'd ever seen it be um and you know used to it would be dean coons and stephen king yep. and maybe someone else but like they actually had a they had some brian Keane on there you know they had a a, a pretty decent selection and i was like oh and i know books a million um they're not going to do anything if it's not making money oh yeah. so obviously demand has ticked up otherwise they would not be doing what they're doing demand has ticked up and um and, and you know again my my perspective could be a little bit skewed because when i started the press like before i had been like a casual uh reader of the genre um, and I, I started the press because I was like, you know what, I, I realized that most of what I was writing was pretty dark. So I was mm-hmm. like, you know what, let me, let me, I have to pick a genre. This is the genre. Now, I, I feel like there's been in the past few years, a, not, I, I wouldn't call it a renaissance because it was always there, but just there's so much great horror fiction that is coming to light. And maybe it's 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 a maybe all of these factors are coming together with more people writing, more people reading, more small presses uh, willing to take a chance yeah. on public on on publishing horror on a small scale scale, so that you know stories that take chances, maybe stories that are a little bit more riskier than a traditional publisher would want to take on, have yeah. the chance to see the light of day. Um, maybe all of those things are coming together uh but it's well, definitely fun <laughs> yeah oh yeah well and i just have to say uh i actually just did a another interview with the author and we talked a little bit about this where um because he, he's a horror author and i we both agreed that like i i think that sh- short stories tend to be the best format for horror uh there are some mm. great horror novels out there but uh, I think the sweet spot for horror really is the short story, but you know, big presses don't publish a lot of, they don't, they don't like to publish short story collections, you know, that's not really true. what they do. Uh, but man, small presses put them out all the time and they put out like these excellent, like themed ones, you know, like I got to, uh, I had a story published in an anthology that all it was, was uh found stories like found footage horror movies but short stories oh, like every that story so cool right it was uh, like and i just 
by blind luck had a story that fit. I saw the call. I love found footage movies. Like, oh my God, please, please. I hope they take this story. And they did. And so, but like, that's not something that you really see from like your big name traditional publishers. You know, they don't, you know, for them, you know, if they don't sell 20,000 copies of it, it's almost not worth getting out of the bed in the morning for them, you know, Right. but for a small press, you know, if they sell, you know, 2000 copies of this, this anthology right out the gate. I mean, that's, that's fantastic, you know? Heck yeah. And, and it, and it's one of those deals that like it, it, it scratched, Oh God, did that scratch my itch? Like that was like the perfect anthology for me. Like I loved it so much, <laughs> but it was something that I would not have gotten from, you know, any of the big name. Exactly. And, and that's, that is something, I mean, that's one of the reasons why, People are like, oh, because I've received a lot of positive feedback about the anthologies that we've been putting out. And I tell people, I'm like, I really can't take any credit because I, all I did was put the calls out and then people sent me, like, I had a hard time with every single project. I had such a hard time choosing because of the amount of quality material that people sent. Yeah. And we're, we're paying semi-pro rates. Mm-hmm. So it, it, they definitely weren't sending it for the money. Um, but I've had the chance now to establish relationships with authors who are just really fantastic. Um, authors who consistently turn out good work. And, and, and oh, whenever I read a story of theirs, I will look at the world in a different way. Yeah. Um, and it's just... It's, it's, there's just so much good stuff out there. It's probably yeah. why my to be read pile is <laughs> it's quite oh, large. I'm not going to yeah. tell you how big it is. Yeah, no, I, oh God, I, I feel that. And like, that's the thing is like, um, just doing this podcast, like uh, I've met so many cool authors. It's like, I don't have time to read their books before I have them on because there, there's so many of them, you know? And then like, mm-hmm. I get to talking to them. And I was like, oh man, this sounds really good. I wish I, <laughs> I wish I had read it. Uh, so like it is, I, I do always enjoy when I actually get to have someone on that I have read their book ahead of time and not like, oh, well, I just got to add that book to the TBR pile after. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, all right. So uh, what was an element of Southern culture that you kind of, felt it was important to showcase and how did you go about doing that? Oh gosh. Um, okay. So I really like food. Ooh. Okay. Speaking my language. Okay. Um, and I have, I've, I've touched on it in a couple of of books. So Detective Boudreaux, sadly, there isn't a lot of um, food in there, mostly because my main characters are the types of folks who don't have a lot of time to sit down and eat, you know, mm. good food. Um, but uh, so for instance, there's a story that I'm, I'm, sh- it's a novel, it's finished, I'm working on revising it so I can shop it around. But the main characters very much eat, <laughs> Maybe I was hungry when I was writing this, uh, but they, they, they're traveling around the South. They're traveling around like the Texas, Louisiana, like that area. Mm-hmm. And uh, they both eat 
uh, good food. Like, you know, they have a good brisket here or there. They'll do like a, a po' boy if they're in New Orleans, mm. of course, because you always mm-hmm. have po' boys. Uh, yeah. Usually from, I think it's Verdi Mart. Mm, so good. Yeah. And, but then they also stop at Whataburger. So, you know. <laughs> okay. Hey, look, look, no, I, 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 no hate on Whataburger. Uh, <laughs> I was no. actually... I, I was coming back from a panel, uh, doing a panel in Birmingham and pulled into a Whataburger and there were two pigs running around the parking lot. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, like you do. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, but yeah, no, Whataburger's, uh, Whataburger's, uh, it, it's good stuff. As fast food goes, it, it's good. Yeah, uh, we, uh, we had a, an annual training with my reserve unit um, a couple of years ago and we, we got off the plane, we were heading to Fort Hood. And I, I told my NCO, I was like, listen, we got to go stop uh, on the way. We got to grab some food because we don't know when we'll eat. Um, but w- I want to stop at Whataburger. And he was like, why? What? You know, it's so special. I'm like, listen, just trust me. Yeah. Um, and so we did. We did stop there. And it was as wonderful as I remembered. Uh, and it was just mm-hmm. lovely. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, many, many. And for me, the best part is they do those uh, honey butter chicken biscuits. Oh and, yes. And I at the time we had one in Montgomery and I was working night shift and uh but living in Troy. Mm. And so uh coming home from work, we would drive past that one. We carpooled, me and two coworkers. And uh every night I'd be like, So are we stopping tonight? Because I, <laughs> I never drove, I just pitched on the gas. And like they like once a week we would stop. And it was always like the best night of the week. It's like, oh man, get that honey butter chicken biscuit. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, but I think another thing that does that does come through is, and then something that you touched on a little bit earlier, the fact that there's so many different people and places. And so, I mean, it, Living in Texas, Missouri, North Carolina, yeah, it's all technically the South, but it's there are distinct regions, there are distinct cities and towns, and even within those cities and towns, like there's different populations. So I was always like, I'm always, oh, you're here with the military, yes, and then people that that's the category that you're in, whether you're in the military or a military affiliated, Um, and then you have the folks who live there, and then you have the folks who move there. you know, and it's just, it's, it's really interesting to me um, as, as someone who just likes to observe people and see how they interact, not in a creepy way. Yeah. Like in, a, in a total, I'm doing this for my writing career. Way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look, I probably should yeah. stop while I'm <laughs> No, 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 no. I mean, to me, that's, that's, uh, that's 80% of the reason why I go to Dragon Con is to post up mm. in the uh, Marriott atrium and just people watch, yes. you know, like it's, <laughs> it's so good, but yeah, no, like okay. uh, I can, I can definitely attest. I, you know, living in Montgomery, this is where Maxwell air force base is. Mm-hmm. And there are a huge number of people from the air force here. And yes. Oh, the moment someone finds out that you're uh, that you're in the military, you were definitely put into that box. Um, nope. you're, you're an outsider. No, one's going to get invested in you. Cause you're going to leave us. Um, but the, 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 the ironic part is so many of these people end up retiring to Montgomery. Oh yeah. Um, Cause it's, it's so cheap. <laughs> it's so cheap to live here. <laughs> it's cheap. And there's a military community. Yeah. So there you go. 
Um, yeah. And <laughs> that's another reason why I'm a writer. It's because uh, in addition to being a reservist, I'm also a military spouse. And um, when you walk in and say, yes, I'd like to find a job. And yes, my spouse is in the military. Oh, and yes, I'm a reservist. People are like, well, we'll see what we can do. And then you never yeah. hear from them. Right. So it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I like to ask where you get your ideas from, and that's a super cliche question, but kind of the angle that I, I look at it from is I like to know how much do you draw on your own life that you work into your books, or do you try and keep a clear, uh, separation from like your, your fictional life from your, from your actual life? Oh no, there's. Yeah, there's no separation. <laughs> um, when when people say write what you know, my take on that is everything that you experience, whether it's someplace that you've lived, whether it's the music that you listen to, whether it's the people that you surround yourself with, whether it's your the the groups that you interact with when you're doing your hobbies, um, whether the, the books that you read, all of that comes together. And when I'm writing, the, sometimes I don't even realize that I'm, I'm doing it, especially when I'm like in that flow state where you're just writing and writing. Mm -hmm. And then I, I look at it and I realize, oh, that's where that came from. <laughs> um, the, the, the project that I was working on, the, the one that I was, I was talking about that needs to be revised really badly. Um, Why well, I sent that to an editor and and paid for it to be professionally edited which is why i stopped querying it because it really does need to be revised mm -hmm. but one of the things that the editor said to me was they were going through it and they're like yeah, i really like this theme that you have throughout the book of found family mm. and i was like yeah it's totally intentional <laughs> <laughs> and i was thinking to myself oh that's what i was doing and then once they pointed it out it became very obvious and it, I was like, well, of course I use that as a theme because that is something that as we've been traveling, that's what, that's what we do is we meet people and they become friends and some of them become closer. And, you know, I, I come from a pretty large-ish close-knit family and wherever I go, I try to recreate that with the people that I find along the way. Um, yeah. so, so yeah, there's, there's definitely not, there's just a, a very blurry line between, you know, in, in my brain, when I start writing, I'll steal anything, anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. So, uh, I have to say there, so I am <laughs> the other podcast I do, my, my co-host constantly makes fun of me. Cause I, I can't remember details. Like I, I'm a very fast reader mm -hmm. and, I'm very much a, I want to get to the end kind of reader. I want to know where we're going. So, uh, you know, there's some books I can remember every little detail, but most of the time I, I don't remember all the details. Um, so like with side roads, uh, and like with short story collections, like I'm, I've read all of Stephen King's short story collections, like mm, each two mm -hmm. or three times. And every time I read them, it's like, I read it for the, <laughs> for the first time again. Um, cause my memory is so terrible, but I have to say with, with, with side roads, you had one story that like, it stuck with me and I think about it all the time. Now, can I remember the name of it? No, that would be, and you would think before this episode, I would have walked over there and picked it up and found it, but no, I, I this is not that kind of podcast <laughs> <laughs> that, that that's for better podcasts. No, but, 
but uh, you had the story about the, and I'm not going to, without spoilers, about the uh, uh, the Muslim woman uh, in the military. Terminal Eve. Yes. Okay. That mo- That story has stuck with me more than pretty much any short story that I've read in the past couple of years. Uh, and so I felt like, I felt like there was some, it felt to me like there was some kind of lived experience in that story. Mm. Um, that maybe not lived experience, but that you were drawing on the fact that you are military, that you could, you know, it felt genuine to me. I guess what I'm trying to say, like it didn't read like me trying to write what it's like to live on a military base. Cause I have no clue, you know, um, it, it felt, it felt very real. And I think that kind of is partly why it, it has lingered long on the brain. You, you know, it's so funny. You're not the first person to tell me that. And when I was writing it, I, so I actually wrote that in response to a call for uh, books. It was, it was like a brewer and he was publishing, he wanted short stories to, that had something to do with brewing beer. Okay. And looking back, what he was probably looking for was like something lighthearted that, you know, you could sit <laughs> and drink a beer. And instead, I wrote this um, piece that I, again, this is one of those pieces where I was writing it and thinking, oh, this is pretty, you know, this is just a story. And then when I read it now, I'm like, oh, that's why people are having emotional reactions to it, because <laughs> there's there's some parts in there where the line is thin. Um and yeah, it, it was, it was definitely, there's the, the part, uh, I don't want to like talk, give away too much, but there's a lot of parts that were either experienced or um, were drawn from people that I knew who had certain experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I'll steal anything. Right. <laughs> and, and then it just, it all kind of came together. Um, in, in that particular story. Yeah. It was well, yeah. <laughs> came together real well. Uh, Thank you. So uh, just uh, more for my personal edification. Um, I, uh, when I got started, all I wrote was short stories. Like that was early days of Bob, the writer was writing short stories, sending them off to anthologies. And mm-hmm. uh, every story I've ever had accepted was one that I had just lying around and I saw the call and I was like, Ooh, this story fits. And then uh, every time I've written a story specifically for a call, like I was like, Oh, like someone was putting out a, uh, they wanted like sword and sorcery Cthulhu stories. And I was like, Oh my God, this is like right up my alley. Let me write a, let me write a story (laughs) for it. Someone else was doing a, uh, they wanted a, it was supposed to be like steampunk Sherlock Holmes Cthulian horror. I was like, oh my God, you're ticking all my boxes. Let me write a story for you. <laughs> Every story I've ever written specifically for a call has been rejected. Like to the point of not even like personalized rejections, just oh, nah, man. bro, get out of here. <laughs> oh man. So uh I've talked with a few people that have had similar experiences. Um uh, and I just wanted to know uh how, how it works for you. Have you had much luck in writing to the call or do you find that more of your stuff is stuff you had lying around that you send in or kind of, how does that break down? So if I, so 
if I've been invited to a specific anthology or I'm working with the anthologists, like, so for instance, for the writer punk anthologies mm-hmm. um, or for uh, the devil's do, which came out from, it was the debut anthology from Valhalla books. Mm. Um, each of those times the, I was invited and they was given the theme. And of course, an invitation is never a guarantee, right. but I was able to write uh, stories that were accepted into those publications. Every time I've submitted a story that I wrote to theme yeah. <laughs> to a publication, uh, same thing. It just, yeah. and, and I think what happens is, um, and f- speaking from the editor side, when you're putting together an anthology, especially once you've gotten to the point where you've got your four or five stories that you know are going to be in there, the project takes on its own vibe. Mm. And that vibe is, you know, you then either consciously or unconsciously, at least I do, I start looking for, I'm like, okay, these are the ones that I really, really want. Now I need the ones that will also fit what I really, really want. And, and it takes on its own sort of personality. Yeah. And I, re- I think that's probably um, what's, what's going on is that there's, uh, there's extreme competition, of course, because yeah. uh, every call that I've had, I've been overwhelmed is like the nice way to say it. Because <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a lot of people writing out there. Yeah. And then, especially when you get into, okay, so these stories are written well. Like for me, it's always, oh, well, you made it to the second round. You made it to the third round. You didn't make it to the final round. Yeah. So I, I really feel like, th- I think that's kind of what happens. Um, and then just, yeah. It's, I, it's I, I, I also feel like what probably ends up happening is, you know, if you say steampunk, Lovecraft, Sherlock Holmes, bring it to me. You know, the people who are fans of that are like, oh, they're all over it. But mm-hmm. I imagine what ends up happening is because they're all drawing on the same source material. A lot of it winds up being a little samey. Whereas if you you know, like you just come up with an idea on your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 th- I like to think it tends to be at least a little more original. <laughs> so when it comes time to actually make those decisions as an editor, I can see where, hey, this one is perfectly well-written, but I've got three other stories like it, whereas this story also perfectly well-written, but it's really got a unique spin on it. I feel like the unique spin is probably going to at least stand out more uh, it may not fit the final product, but it at least will catch more eyes. Yes. And, and that's the other thing too. Um, I'm trying to remember the person who wrote, somebody wrote like advice for writing for themed calls or how to write for, you know, themed anthologies. The, the first part of advice that they gave was, get rid of your first story or like your, your first idea. That's not what, you know, don't, don't use that one because mm-hmm. that's the one, that's the one that's going to occur to everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Which, no, makes, which makes sense, which makes sense. And I, uh, and then you also have, um, what you call it? 
Oh, I just lost my train of thought. I'm, yeah. I'm, it's, it's bugging me that I can't remember who, where, who wrote this article that I'm remembering because uh, I'm also bad with details. But that yeah. was the one piece of advice that really stuck out. And I've, uh, I've tried that, to that, that's really uh, That's really good. I feel like that's really good advice. And it makes perfect sense to me. So, um, and in retrospect, uh, now, uh, some of the stories I've never done anything with, but some of those stories I was able to take and kind of repurpose them as like, uh, you know, my Cthulian sword and sorcery story, I was able to take and basically rewrite to fit, um, you know, uh, an eventual anthology that one day I may put out that set in like a nautical kind of world. And, you know, if after some rework, it fits really well there, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So for the writers out there, that are listening. Uh, don't despair just because, you know, you wrote this bizarrely specific story uh, for this one of a kind uh, anthology out there does not mean you cannot eventually find a home for it. Even if you have to rework it and put it out yourself. <laughs> well, I'm actually reading for a charity anthology right now. Um, and it's like a super short notice call. And mm-hmm. so some, some folks are writing for the deadline, which is in five days. Um, and then some other folks were like, Hey, I have this piece and this particular call is super feminist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and I've gotten at least two submissions from people who are like, I submitted this and the editor didn't even, you know, it wasn't even the next day when the editor rejected it. (laughs) Um, I was like, okay, I I get why, because again, I was like, but I would really like to publish it. So sometimes it's just the matter of it's not the right home for it. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the case I try and just bludgeon it into people's heads is like, there's 370 million people in the u.s you know Mm -hmm. 7 billion people worldwide um if like 0.001 percent of the population is into what you're doing that's still hundreds of thousands of millions of people you know yeah it the people are out there that love what you're doing it's just how do you how do you find those people that's that that's the tricky part (laughs) yes if you guys, if anybody out there has any ideas, let me know. <laughs> yeah, oh, man, man, you know, uh, yep. I feel like uh, I feel like that's the real skill. Like, you know, anyone can write a book. <laughs> it's it's marketing a book is the the real fancy skill. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, and that's that's something that um, again, it's a case of I wish I knew then what I knew what I know now. Um, part of part of the MFA program that I'm with delves into how to set up an author platform Hmm. and i know there's i think there's conflicting advice some people say hey don't worry about your platform until you've written the book i say your your platform is your platform and once you've written that book you're probably going to want to already have your platform ready to launch it whether it's you know querying traditional media um, mm-hmm. you know, even I'm, I'm looking at ACX right now to possibly do an audiobook, you know, to collaborate, to do an audiobook version of side roads. Yeah. And they, they're asking, you know, what's your social media? I, as a, if I were a narrator, I would probably want to see, you know, are people, do they have a platform that they're selling this, that their book on? Yeah. Oh, 100%. So, yeah. So it's, I, it's definitely, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I really agree with that. 
um, cause I, I I've heard both. They're like, Oh, don't, you know, don't worry about it till you're, till you're published. But I know like just from, uh, talking with agents in the past, you know, agents, if you're, if you're trying to get traditionally published, you're going to have to have an agent and mm-hmm. agents look at your social media presence now. Like that is something that they consider when they take on a book. And I, I know we all hate social media. I know it. We do. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm on at least three platforms that I would rather claw my eyes out than be on and would not be, but you know, that's just the name of the game. Um, it, it sucks, but uh, the, the reality is you gotta be in some of these places, at least one of these places, you know, people have yeah. got to be able to find you. And it like the, the, you know, the running joke about the time to start your newsletter was five years ago or your, your email list was five years ago. Like it's, it's true. God, that's, I wake up every day and kick myself that I did not, you know, I, I, I've had my platform for, for years, years and years and years, but have only really started trying to do my email list in the past year. And it's like, what was I thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I am right there with you. I am thinking the same thing. Yeah. Um, So Oh God. And, and there's must, a whole artistry to it. There is. There really is. I, I, if I, I don't I, have that skill. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I would like to go back and kick 2012, 2013, Rachel, and be like, do not name your website something weird. Name it yeah. after yourself. So now every time I tell people my website, instead of just being like, yeah, it's Rachel A. Broom, like all of my other platforms now, I'm like, yeah, it's infamous hyphen scribbler. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I got lucky there. <laughs> I, I, I started, uh, I, uh, 2012 is around when I really started getting serious about all this kind of stuff. And I don't remember exactly when I set everything up. But I was able to lock down Tales by Bob everywhere. Nice. Um, and so that was that I did right. Uh, everything else, I, <laughs> I have made many mistakes along the way. But at least that one, that's the one thing I did right early. And it, it really has benefited me, I, I feel like. Um, uh, at least sometimes people recognize me <laughs> once in a blue moon. Um, yeah. So, all right. Well, this kind of nicely segues into the the first half of the the podcast. I kind of gear more towards the readers. In the back half, I kind of gear more towards the writers. And so uh, I'd love to know kind of what's your general process. Are you more of a plotter, more of a pantser? Like how does how does it kind of how does writing work for you? Uh, I have a deadline and it's tomorrow and then I panic a lot, <laughs> drink coffee <laughs> until I make it. Uh, no, I, I tend to do a lot of writing in my head. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is if I, I this is going to sound so terrible, like I have no work ethic, but I, I don't sit at my desk and write every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I do tend to spend a lot of time uh like thinking yeah which which often looks like i'm just sitting here not doing anything (laughs) but it's not true i am thinking although a lot of times i'll try to get my thinking done when i'm doing the laundry or washing the dishes um and during during those sessions it's more like um turning over ideas turning over problems especially if i'm stuck on how something is going to happen um but when i 
when I do sit down, I do tend to sit down with Scrivener and take all of the notes that I that are on my phone, on a Google Doc sheet, on a bunch of post-its, on a receipt that I got from Dunkin' Donuts yesterday. <laughs> yeah. You know, I try to try and get all that stuff and set up uh, an outline in Scrivener. Um, and it, sometimes it's just like a, a general outline, but whether I'm writing in Word or I'm writing in Scrivener, whichever one, it does tend to coalesce from those ideas from, you know, okay, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And then as I'm writing, things start to shake out and it, the outline gets more specific as I write. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then, yeah. And then as I get into the project, once the outline is more or less there, that's when I can actually sit down every day and write because I know where I'm going. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it takes, uh, sometimes I have to just set like a five minute timer. Like sometimes I just can't get going. I just set a five minute timer and I just force myself not to stop. Yeah. And then like another five minute and then a 10 minute. And that's kind of how I get into getting the words done that I need to get done. Yeah. Uh, Cause my brain will like, if there's anything else that my brain can do other than what it's supposed to, it'll go do yes. the other thing. Oh, preach. Preach. Um, well, I gotta say, like, I'm, I am like always working or doing other stuff with, uh, so, uh, I, I've extolled its virtues on this podcast before. So this won't be a stranger to anyone who's been listening, but the writing tribe is an excellent Facebook group if you are trying to be a writer. And we're, we are both in it. And in fact, you host some of their, uh, weekly events. And, uh, I'm always, but like every so often I catch a holiday where I can, I can sit down and uh, write with y'all and those sprints. Um, like I can pretty, con- pretty consistently do a uh, thousand to 1500 words in an hour. Like that's, that's not really stressing me, but like anytime I do the writing sprints with y'all, I can crank out a thousand words in a sprint. No problem. And it's, I don't know if it's the accountability. I don't know if it's just the the communal aspect of it, but something for me that, that really just the pressure of, Oh my God, there's a timer. I don't know what it is, but it really does uh, help get rid of the distractions, I guess. I so. think so. I, I think you're right. And that's a mix of all of those things. Um, especially the accountability mm-hmm. and the fact that you're setting that time aside and saying, yes, this is my time. Um, I also working from home is both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because I have a very flexible schedule. If my kids get sick, I'm right here. You know, if I have to go into the the reserve center and get something done, I can just hop in the car and go do it. Like I'm my own boss. On the other hand, <laughs> nobody's <laughs> nobody's looking over my shoulder going, shouldn't you get back to work? This is the longest coffee break ever. I'll be like, yeah. it's only three, three hours. Come on, man. Yeah. Um, but, and it's also, there's, there's also other stuff I'm doing. Like right now I'm contracting and editing two full-length anthologies at once, which is probably not the best idea ever, but that's what it is. <laughs> you know, so there's, yeah. there's always a lot of stuff going on. Sometimes I do have to just step away to let my brain step away from the busyness of the screen so that it can, it can make those connections that you need to make to have your story, have those moments um, that aren't going to come. If you're just like, yes, give me ideas now brain. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that for me is, uh, 
if I if I ever feel like I'm getting kind of like bogged down or like the words aren't flowing as well, um, what I do is like on my way to work that day, I just write in perfect silence, like turn everything off, like mm. no podcast going, no music, no anything. And I find if I will just sit there with my thoughts, a lot of times I'll work through what's bothering me about whatever book or novella I'm working on. And, you know, then, oh, okay, cool. I figured it out. Know what I'm going to do next. And, you know, it writes the ship, so to speak. Yes. So uh, I have, uh, oh, so first I'd like to ask what's, uh, you know, if someone's listening to this right now, maybe they're, they're trying to get that first book done. They're really struggling. What is a bit of advice you'd like to give them? Oh, gosh. If they're, give yourself permission to do the things that you don't think you're allowed to do. And by that, I mean, if you think you have to write in a linear fashion, starting at the beginning and going to the end, give yourself permission to skip over the part that's bothering you and just pick up some place down the line. You're allowed to do that because you're the writer. Yeah. Um, if you think, oh man, I can't possibly write this in a book. It won't, you know, it won't be okay if I not on the one hand, it might not be okay, but on the other <laughs> hand, write it, yeah. look at it and then make that decision because don't, don't tell yourself, no, you can't do something before you even try to do it. Um, and, yeah. and then I would say just, you know, join the tribe and come join us for co-working on Monday and Friday. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's really excellent advice. Cause like, I think a lot of people, when they sit down to write that first book or that first story, they have an idea of how you're supposed to do it, you know? And I've, I've interviewed a ton of people for this podcast and everyone has a different method, you know, Uh, there are a lot of common elements. Sure. But everyone had to get it, to get to where we're at, you know, we have all experimented with the how you're supposed to do it and figured out what works for us. You know, the first couple of books I tried to write, I plotted them into oblivion and got nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. And then the next book I tried to write, I 100% pantsed it and got nowhere. And I've, you know, over the years, I've figured out like an 80 20 mix, you know, a little bit of plotting and then, you know, pants away. And that's what works for me. But that's probably not going to work for anyone else you know, so it's, or exactly. it'll work for some other people, but you know, you, you just got to find your mix and like, God, man, like what's the worst that happens? You know, you, you have to skip that chapter till next week. You know, it's not like there's anyone holding a gun to your head that you have to write this book, you know, have fun exactly. with it, play with it. So I would also say that um, if you, if you look at any other activity, uh, like being an artist, playing the piano, uh, playing soccer, riding horses, you don't like, you don't put a uh, paintbrush to canvas and immediately paint the Mona Lisa. Hmm. Right. You, you might start off. Like I have a book called how to draw yeah. and I bought myself a couple little pencils and I'm learning how to, you know, hold the pencil and how to move the pencil on the paper. I'm very early in this process. Yeah. Um, cause yeah, cause I'm, if I just started drawing, I would get what I have, which looks like somebody who doesn't know how to draw was drawing <laughs> something. Yeah. Um, so your first, if you're writing your first book, don't put so much pressure on either yourself or your book to, 
to know, to have all the answers, to be so great, et cetera. My first book is, it's on my computer and someday <laughs> it will be part of this epic fantasy series that I'm, I'll, I'll move back to. I'll probably yeah. have to rewrite it because yeah. I've learned so much that I can recognize that, you know, it got rejected everywhere I sent it for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, Brandon Sanderson, like his first 10 novels got rejected or something crazy like that. And he just did the most highly backed Kickstarter in history, you know? Um, I mean, if that's not an indicator of, you know, just it may take a little time, but, you know, great things can happen if you'll just give yourself, you know, give yourself permission to, to experiment with what works. Yeah. And write some short stories. Yes. You know, I won't say that it's the same process for a short story or a novel because it's not, but it gives you that practice. Yes. And, and I, I love that advice. I, that's some advice I give a lot. Um, and partly it's cause like, I think a lot, some people just need to chalk, chalk up a win, you know, just, just the mm-hmm. act of finishing something, you know, for some people, you know, that that's an eye opener. It's like, Oh, wow. I actually, finished what i set out to do it in roughly the shape i i imagined it being and you know just chalking up some 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 victories you know you can have those to look back on go hey i did that i can do this yes all right so i have a background in music and so i love to ask authors when you're writing what do you listen to uh white noise nothing music like what what's what's the soundscape that's going on while you're writing oh gosh so it's usually usually nothing mm-hmm. um but if i am listening to music it might be something like christopher tin which is kind of like a world music slash classical music yeah. situation um sometimes i'll just get on a kick of uh electronic music or swing yep. music uh, or blues yeah um it 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 does it does tend to be like one genre that'll keep going mm-hmm. um when i was writing steel toed blues and w- when now i'm about to revise it i listened to a lot of shamika copeland yeah <laughs> over and over the sa- a couple same couple of albums over and over just because i just love her voice and she mm-hmm. actually heavily influenced one of the the characters in that book um but i'll also listen to a lot of like 90s punk like rancid yeah um then i'll listen to some dropkick murphys and yeah you know anything that's got a beat that can keep me going right right all right so uh at this point in the in the podcast i i always say this and uh most of the authors don't know who i'm talking or don't personally know the man but you do so this is be a little more weird but so um uh my author hero is john harkness and uh he talks about how uh no matter how much and how quickly an author can write they cannot keep up with the pace of reading and so because of that we should always be you know supporting other authors sharing their work that kind of stuff so two-part question part one who is your author hero and part two who is an author you think we should be checking out that maybe we aren't? Oh gosh. I 
And no. you, can, you can you can name multiple people. It's not a. <laughs> it's just, you don't have to limit yourself. I know and admire so many amazing authors. Um, oh man, you know what? I'm 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 having the decision paralysis. I'm yes. like, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I will go. I'll go back to my youth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the authors that I read that made me who I am today as, as a reader and a writer, that would be Ray Bradbury. Ooh. Um, in particular, the collection, The October People mm-hmm. and the novel, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Yeah. Now I, I have read Something Wicked This Way Comes. It's actually one of the few books I have on my shelf right now. So, yes. Um, and I read his, I think his Zen and the Art of Writing was one of the first craft or like one of the first books on writing that I ever read mm. and just really, really enjoyed it. Um, I go back and I'll reread his stuff from time to time and just, yeah, really, really yeah. enjoy his stuff. Yeah, um, love it. I, I, I will say with the caveat that I don't like when we talk about heroes, I don't actually know too much about his background. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's always a risk when you, when you're talking about older, older authors like that. Um, But but, yes, no, I I, caveat noted and accepted. (laughs) um, And a writer who doesn't get much love. Oh gosh. Okay. So I definitely, so I know all of these writers. Okay. So Michael Williams, um, he wrote a fallen autumn. He's one of mm-hmm. Hartness's authors. Yeah. I just loved that book and uh, I just, I just loved it. And yeah. I think that his stuff is really great. Very, uh, not just well-written, but the characters that he has are just so nuanced and rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his stories, they never take you in a direction that you expect, but they always, feel like that's the direction you're like it's like reading it and you're like oh yes yes yeah it's so just so satisfying um Paige Christie uh she wrote uh, she's just finishing the last book in the um in her series the first one I think is dragon oh shoot dragon weather d-r-a-i-g-o-n weather Paige Christie and it really, when I was reading those books, they reminded me of a, a genre from the 80s and 90s that I just loved, which was like dragons and fantasy and like uh, sisterhoods and mm-hmm. lots of action and sword play and just yeah. really, really good stuff. So if you like Barbara Hambly, mm-hmm. um, who, who was a writer who was very prolific in that era, uh, she's like a... a a 21st century Barbara, Barbara Hambly, really nice. good stuff. Um, and then one of my authors that I'm also going to kind of throw out yeah. there, uh, oh, <laughs> Jude Reed. Mm-hmm. And she has a number of short stories, some of which I've published, some of which have been published. Uh, she has one in the, uh, one of the cemetery gates medias anthologies. Oh yeah. Um, and she, her writing is just, it's it's dark and fantastic and lovely and it's just intriguing um and it 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 takes you places where you're like are we gonna go there are we gonna go oh yeah we're going there (laughs) buckle up it's gonna be a bumpy ride but just just so amazing and i mean i really could keep going but probably 
I should. Well, so why don't, why, why don't, uh, if, if you had to recommend one Crone Girls uh, press book to check out uh, for someone wanting to get a feel for what y'all are doing, do you have a, a go-to recommendation there? Um, yes, I would recommend that they check out uh, our latest full length, which is Stories We Tell After Midnight, Volume 3. Okay. Um, and the Stories We Tell After Midnight series was inspired by the spooky stories to tell in the dark, yes. but for adults. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I actually, so that's... I actually collect those books, the, the, the ones with the like horrible artwork in them. Yes. I, co- yes. I collect those anytime I at a thrift store that has them, they, they actually, uh, they released like pocket versions of those. They released holographic cover versions of those. Oh, like, yeah. And so I, I, I have, uh, I, I went digital on like 95% of my library and, uh, one of the few things I kept were all those old scary stories books. So um, they, they're they're very near and dear to my heart. (laughs) And you know what? I, I would not be surprised if there is some sort of like straight line correlation to those books and the proliferation of horror authors today, you know, like all of us Mm. who read those growing up now writing horror novels, there's probably a connection. (laughs) I, I would, I would agree with that correlation. Yes, I would. Yeah. All right. So to wrap up, why don't you tell us where can uh, people who want to check you out, where can they find you and where can they find your books? Absolutely. So if you want to check out those Crone Girls anthologies, we are online at cronegirlspress.com. And if you head to Facebook, Twitter, or Insta, it's at Crone Girls Press. Um, and we do have a Facebook group. It's kind of fun. We share information about our latest releases and Halloween memes because you can never have too many of those. You cannot. No. Um, if you're interested in my stuff, uh, as I mentioned, my website is www.infamous-scribbler.com. And, uh, but you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Rachel A. Brune, B-R-U-N-E. Yeah. Um, that's probably a little bit easier to find. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Rachel, this has been fantastic. Uh, definitely one of my favorite interviews that I've done on here. So uh, I appreciate you giving, uh, giving us your time. I appreciate the invitation. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, all right, guys. Uh, Till next time, y'all be good now. for taking the time to check out another exciting episode of Southern Fried Fantasy. If you would, you know the drill. Give us a like, subscribe, follow, all that jazz. We'll appreciate you. Until next time, y'all. is part of the Tales by Bob network. To see all our great shows, go to talesbybob.com.